Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Kylie Ladd is the author of I'll Leave You With This. Kylie is a novelist, psychologist, and freelance writer. Her six novels have been published both in Australia and overseas, with her fifth, The Way Back, currently in development for film. She has also co-authored two nonfiction books and holds a PhD in neuropsychology. Kylie lives in Melbourne, Australia, with her husband, two children, and a dachshund named Taco. Welcome, Kylie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss I'll Leave You With This, a novel. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So we befriended each other on Instagram, I guess, a while back. And I was really moved by your story about your own brother. And then of course your novel was really beautiful. I love how you tell the story this time of a, of a shooting of Daniel and 
how it affects the five siblings in the family and how you go through different points of view and how a loss can affect so many people. But then of course, what happens with everybody's life independently. So anyway, it was really beautiful and immersive and sad and all the good things that a book brings. But maybe I should let you tell a little more about what your book's about and the inspiration behind it. Yeah, look, I think you've summed it up beautifully. But uh, yes, it's it's really about uh, four sisters who are not particularly close for a variety of reasons, but who do come together after the death of their only and much-loved brother, Daniel, uh, to track down the recipients of his organs after his death. Now, I always feel I have to insert a caveat at that point and say that sounds gruesome and medical and technical, but uh, I I hope you'd agree that the book is quite light in tone and even funny in places, uh, Mm. even though that premise, as I said, does does put a few people off. But, look, it's, it's it's a story of life, obviously, of hope and of legacy, I guess. Legacy was one of the main words that was in my head while I was writing it. Interesting. Well, you do have this dark sort of sense of humor about <laughs> death and everything. In one scene, you have the the sister's husband's aunt has passed away and the ashes are in the backseat of the car and you have this Daniel's old dog come in and eat his way through it. So there's ash all over the back of the car and she's like, oh my gosh. Anyway. <laughs> that, that was rather, uh, yes, I really threw readers right in at the start there, didn't I, with being about death. I have to confess that was almost inspired by something that happened in my own family. My husband, yes, had been driving around with the ashes of his mother. It's not funny, but uh, he didn't know what to do with them or where she would have wanted them spread. And being a man, he'd just let them stay on the back seat until they fell below the back seat and one day we found the dog. Now the dog, our dog did not get to the ashes, but our dog was interested in the box and I suddenly thought, oh, my God, imagine what would have happened if Taco, our dash hound, had actually got into that box. And and that came to me when I was starting the book. So, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Again, I'm making this book sound so macabre and gruesome. No. No, not at all. Yeah. No, I was trying to point out like, because there's always like this piece of funny with all the darkest days, right? There's the humor in it. And I think it's the juxtaposition of those two things that enables people to even get through it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. There has to be laughter as well, doesn't there? And and that's what life is as as sentimental as it sounds. You know, life is about the balance, isn't it? So yeah. Yeah. Mm. And tell me, you lost tragically your own brother. Tell me about all of that and how this story comes from a personal place. Yeah, look, I did, and and that was certainly one of the main, uh, there were two main inspirations, this book, and I'm just going to quickly talk about the other one and then, and then move on yes. to that. Yes. The, the first was, um, and I haven't actually told you this, and I'm, I'm going to hold it up briefly, I don't know if you can see it, but the first was a newspaper article I, I came across one day when uh, I was between books, actually. It says, Doctors Left Mystified by Amazing Sleight of Hand. And I mention it in the book, which you have read, but for people who haven't, very briefly, it's about an Indian girl, a student, 18 years old, who lost both uh, arms below the elbow, had to be amputated below the elbow in a bus crash. Doctors offered her a, and this always sounds a bit science fiction, but it, it's very true, this, this only happened in 2018, Uh, Doctors offered her a double arm transplant. Amazingly, the arms took, but the arms came from a man. The the donor was a male who was older than her, but more importantly, 
bigger than her, of course, being a man, hairier than her, of course, being a man, and quite his, his skin was quite darker than hers. And and skin colour, as you'd appreciate, is is important, particularly in in India, where you know with the caste system and what have you. And doctors said, "Do you want?" these arms and again I'm, I'm aware of how macabre this is sounding but she said of course I want arms the surgery um I'm trying to be short the surgery was a success no, don't be short this is fascinating oh, good it is fascinating because the surgery which took 60 hours and was the first of its kind in the world and I actually work I'm, I'm a neuropsychologist by trade I work in a hospital and I, I got my hospital librarian to look up all the journal articles about this for me because I was fascinated and she did and uh, the surgery took about 60 hours with various teams of surgeons rotating in and out. I know, amazing. Beautiful part is that it worked and within, you know, a month after surgery she had functional arms. But the even better part, Zibi, is that a, a year or so after the uh, surgery, while these arms, when they'd first been attached, looked quite wrong on her, for want of a better word, they looked big and dark and hairy, Within 18 months of the surgery, the arms had transformed quite dramatically, and this is where I hold up the, the paper bin. They're still a bit out of proportion to it, but they, they've lightened in colour, they're not hairy anymore, and they're much more in proportion than what they were, which is which is what I saw in the journal articles. So I'm, because I work in a medical field, that absolutely fascinated me, but it did also strike a chord because, as you mentioned, I lost my own brother uh, just over 10 years ago now, and he was an organ donor. My brother, Piers, was a pilot for Qantas, Australia's airline. He was um, the youngest pilot they'd ever employed. All he'd ever wanted to do was fly in his life. He was 39 um, when one day mum and dad got a phone call from Qantas that um, Piers hadn't shown up for work, and that was completely out of character he just lived to fly and they were he had a partner but she was a flight attendant who was away flying herself so Qantas contacted mum and dad they went round to his flat again long story short he'd suffered uh, an enormous brain aneurysm and was still faintly alive my mother was a doctor and and she performed CPR and was managed to keep him alive although there was blood everywhere until the ambulance came. But by the time my sister and I were contacted about the whole thing and he was in ICU at, at um, the Alfred Hospital, which is Melbourne's major hospital, it was clear that he'd, he'd had this aneurysm and he was brain dead, that he wasn't going to be able to survive. And by the time my sister, who's, who's just 18 months younger than I, and and uh, and I got there, they took us, they, they let us, you know, see Piers and be with Piers and, and then a doctor asked if he could speak with us privately and informed us that Piers was registered as an organ donor and they wanted to check with us that it was okay to proceed with transplantation surgery um, with, with harvesting some of his organs, which, and again, I guess I'm being medical, I was surprised they asked our permission given he was 39 and a registered organ donor, but apparently that's how it's done in Australia. I have no idea about the US. And, look, you know, that was probably the only, well, obviously it was a terrible thing that happened. I don't have to explain that to you although it did give us all a little bit of solace that something came out of it at the time. But again, the best bit of this story happened further down the track, and that is that three years after uh, my brother's death, my parents received a letter from the Organ and Tissue Service, which is what is the service that coordinates transplants in Australia, and it was a letter from the person who'd received my brother's right kidney. And donations in Australia have to be anonymous on both sides, but the parties, the, the parties can co can communicate with each other through the organ and tissue service. And 
this man had it was of the age that my brother had been when he died in his late 30s. He'd had a major infection that had turned into complete kidney failure three or four years before the transplant. He'd been on dialysis for, for that time. Um, and while dialysis saves lives, it's it's also a very difficult way to live. It certainly impairs the quality of life. He'd had to give up work. He'd, he was not able to take his sons to the football. You know, he had three young boys. He wasn't able to travel because he always had to be around for dialysis. He received my brother's kidney and just one is all you need the day that my brother died and he left hospital within the week. He said he felt better the moment he woke, woke up from surgery and, I, and I've now heard this in my research that kidney transplants particularly work very quickly. He said he felt better within 24 hours. He left, left hospital within a week. He was back at work within a month and he finally wrote to us and he said, I'm sorry, it took me so long, but he was going overseas to, to the UK, which is a long way from Australia, with his family for his wife's sister's wedding. And he said, it's finally made me realise I could never have done this on dialysis. And it's made me realise, he said, I've always been grateful. I think of my donor every day. And he said, but I think even more of you, his family, who've lost your loved one. And I'm so grateful to you for allowing this to happen. And now that had happened seven, eight years, seven, six, seven years before I wrote the book. And I never even thought about putting it into a book because even novelists don't turn everything traumatic that happens to them into fiction, at least not straight away. So but it was so it wasn't until I saw that article about the Indian girl and her arms and I thought about what the what a miracle transplantation and organ donation is that suddenly all these pieces fell into place. And I suddenly thought, I want to write about this. And the time was right by that stage. I was over, you know, the initial grief and, I mean, you never get over it completely, of course, but, you know, I was able to write about it by that stage. And while Daniel, the man who loses his life in the book, is not my brother Piers, they're very, very different. It's not Piers' story, but certainly, yes, that was inspiration for writing about organ donation and transplantation. I'm going to take a breath, but I'm also going to say... While I've I've concentrated a lot on organ donation, the book is really, I think, just as much about that, if not even more. It's more it's about sisters and it's about relationships, isn't it? And it's about family and blood. So, which was not what I expected when I started reading writing it, but you know, happened as I was writing it. I suddenly realized these girls, they really don't get on, you know, for all that they're keen to do this for Daniel, they're not, they don't get on themselves. And and that was what gave me the narrative thrust of the book, if you will. Interesting. Right. You said early on that even though the two sisters who are closest in age, you would expect them to get along, right? There's this, you know, assumption, oh, they're close. They'll, they'll be friends. They'll be best friends. And yet those were the two that were furthest apart in a way. Yes. Daniel was actually much closer to the one who was like, what, seven or eight years apart from him. That's right. Look, Daniel is really the one that holds the family together. He's the, he's the fourth in the lineup. There's three girls, Alison, Bridie and Claire above him then Daniel, and then the younger sister, Emma. Um, you might, I'm just, as an aside, you might notice that the the uh, the siblings are named alphabetically. So it's A, B, C, D, E, which... I did not uh, notice that. You did oh not gosh. notice that. Okay. I didn't even, I did not notice that. Oh my gosh, very clever. Did, did, well, it sounds clever. I did it for my readers because it's, it's hard on a reader to be confronted with a whole lot of characters at once and trying to remember them all but birth order is really important in this book as you as you just said you think the two firstborns or the the two oldest are going to be closest and but and then Daniel is actually closest to one that's seven years you know older than him and you know 
birth order is really important to this book. So I wanted the reader to be able to quickly always identify where each character came in the birth order, if that makes sense. So so by giving them A, B, C, D, E, you know, readers who notice <laughs> could uh, work out, okay, E, that's, she's the youngest and she's the youngest by 13 years to the oldest. So it, these are big gaps and, yeah. I can't remember what we were saying before I got distracted. No, no, we were just talking that, about age but, gaps, but um, yeah, I'm really yeah. glad you told me that. That's super clever. I love it, and I feel like a moron for not even noticing. But anyway, it's a great <laughs> oh, idea. That's what I was going to quickly say. Daniel, even though he's fourth, that's right, is is really the the linchpin or the fulcrum in the family. He's the one that all the sisters are closest to, and so when he dies, the sisters who already weren't that close because of personality differences and age gaps are pulled, are even further apart because they no longer even have that central one person that they all love and particularly relate to. So, yes, um, I, I was interested in that and what why, when that happens in a family too. And did that, did something similar happen in your family? I know this is about your novel and novel is not, <laughs> you know, fiction is very much not nonfiction, but did you, were there echoes in, in reality? Not in that specific way. No, it's just my sister and I, and then my brother who was seven years younger than myself, actually, I guess. And actually I probably identify most strongly of all my sisters with Alison, the oldest, because I'm the oldest and, and Alison is a typical oldest child in that she's responsible and organized and a bit bossy and a bit of a pain in the neck. And then that's probably me as well. <laughs> I hadn't actually realized that there was the same age gap between Alison and Daniel as there is between Piers and myself, but there's only three of us. So it's not quite the same, but age, yeah, age plays a part, you, you know, seven years is a big difference. If one of you's at high school and one's still at primary school, it, it is a big gap. And um, yeah, that was part of the reason that the sisters aren't as close as they could be is the age gaps. My kids, there's seven and a half years between my twins and my youngest. Um, oh, wow. And then I have another daughter in between. So anyway. Oh, goodness. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So you know about age gaps. I'm fascinated too. by birth order and all the yeah. interrelationships. I always find myself wondering, you know, what the four of them, God willing, you know, as they grow up, what all the different relationships will be. And I like seeing it all unfold. I love is that you say that because, you know, you say, was there an echo in yours? Well, no, there's only three in mine, but I'm uh, three siblings in my family of birth. But I wanted at least five because five just gives you so many, as you're saying, so many different relationships to play with, you know, A versus B, A and B versus C or, you know, C, yeah. D and E versus A. And, you know, this just... And, and as I mentioned, I'm a psychologist by training and by practice. I, I work two days a week as a psychologist. And those the plethora of relationships and all the different ways they can unfold, but the ways they can so quickly be reversed or turn on each other as well. Oh, I just, I just love playing with that. So five was having five siblings to play with was a delight. It really was. (laughs) Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is such a, a an interesting sort of thought experiment. What happens to the pieces of yourself that live on, right? Because it challenges the whole notion of self and our relationship to our bodies, right? As specific scientific things like so apart from the soul right when you could but then I wonder you know for the girl in the article the donor of those arms right like how great would it have been for someone who loved that man to sit there and like hold his hand again oh absolutely and and I do have a scene in the book as you know of of Alison when she meets the hand um, transplant Daniel's hand transplant recipient and um when I was doing research for the book I you know I'd I'd covered all these standard organs you think about when you're thinking about donations like kidneys, liver, lungs, all that sort of thing. And then I suddenly thought, uh, because I'd heard about this, I'd read about this girl, I suddenly thought, I wonder if that's ever happened in Melbourne, if there's ever been any, or not Melbourne, Australia, if there's ever been any organ, you know, limb transplants. So God bless Google, quickly Googled it. To my delight, I found that there has been one hand transplant recipient in Australia, and that man lives three hours out of Melbourne, I tracked him down again using Google and, and a local paper and I went and met him and he was absolutely fantastic. No way. Uh, he and his wife, yeah, way, and they came to the launch of the book and they were the guests of honour and he received his transplanted hand at the age of 68, which is late in life to be given an organ like a hand. Uh, I mean, a hand transplant's terribly complicated, obviously, Um but you have to pass a battery of psychological tests to be given something, an, an organ like that. And he was apparently the the one who passed them the best, so to speak. I'm not expressing that well. But um, 30% of recipients of, of, of organ donation recipients, at least in Australia, don't take their medicines or don't do the right follow-up, would you believe? There's a, there's a high percentage which, which doctors and scientists believe is some sort of psychological rejection of needing a transplant or what have you. So recipients are often not, not you know, if they're near death, they're not screened, but but recipients often receive a lot of psychological screening before they are given a transplant. Again, at least in Australia, I have no idea how it works anywhere else. And he'd, he'd come through all the tests with flying colours and by the time my book was out, he was 79 and had two, he'd lost all four of his limbs to meningitis and he had two prosthetic legs and one transplanted hand and he came to my uh, book launch at 79 and held court and he held up his hand and said when I was making my speech and said if anyone wants to come and have a look at it feel free and there was a line of people wanting to look at it and he was great he was loving showing it off but yeah it is I remember sitting at his kitchen table and he he showed it to me and, and there is something 
it's very scientific, obviously, but there's something magical too about seeing what is a part of someone else functioning in someone else's body. And and while I'm very much a scientist in my work, there is a a woo-woo part of me that, you know, got goosebumps and just thought, oh, my goodness, you know, this is someone's life going on in a different form. So tell me about the process of turning this story or your idea into fiction and your whole sort of life as a novelist. <laughs> Look, I, I'll i leave you with this. is my It's only my second novel to be published in the US, um, but it's my sixth novel altogether. And I have to say, I actually find writing really hard and sometimes I don't know why I do it Um, (laughs) but obviously after six novels there must be a a good reason and I feel compelled to but I have to say I found this novel really easy to write which is not usual for me now I started this novel I read that article the day that my or two days before my daughter's 18th birthday which was also the day that her school closed down for the first lockdown uh, for COVID back in 2020. And uh, my daughter was doing year 12, her final year at the time. She's very anxious. And she ended up doing seven months of her final year of school at home, online. As you're possibly aware, Melbourne, where I live in Australia, had the longest series of lockdowns in the world. We were locked down for the best part of two years, not consecutively, but, you know, we had like a six-month lockdown and then got out for a few weeks and then a one-month lockdown. And This is a COVID novel. I started writing it in, well, I got the idea in the first lockdown and researched it in the first lockdown. I met my hand recipient or transplant recipient between lockdowns one and two. And that really, once I met him, I really thought, yes, there is, there's really magic in this idea for me. And I started writing it in lockdown two and I finished it in lockdown six, which was our last lockdown. And I actually found it really easy to write, which, as I said, is unusual for me. I set the novel in Sydney, Australia's other major city, even though I live in Melbourne because I was so fed up with being in Melbourne, being <laughs> locked down in Melbourne, uh, in our lockdown. And, again, I know you had something like this in, in uh, probably in, in New York and lots of parts of America, but we were only allowed to leave the house for an hour a day and we weren't allowed to go more than five kilometres from the house. And for the best part of two years, that's all I did and I was, all my other novels are set in Melbourne, but I was over thinking about Melbourne and I thought I'm going to set it somewhere else where I can pretend I'm somewhere else by the harbour. So I set it in Sydney and thank God for that novel because I couldn't do my work as a psychologist. The hospital I worked for shut down, well, it was closed to everything except, you know, emergency surgeries and things like that. And I'm just so grateful that, that I saw that article two days before the first lockdown started and I had something to keep me from going absolutely mad in, you know, the, the 18 months or so that we had of lockdown and I'm very grateful for that, yes. Oh, my gosh. And yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you balance US launches, Australian launches? Like how does that, how, do you, how did you find it for your last book? Tell me a little more about that. Well, this book launched in Australia six months ago, so I did lots of launch stuff for it then, but that's all, you know, that takes four or five months and then it's all started dying down and then it's only just come out in the US and the UK in the last couple of weeks. So it's nice actually to get a chance to talk about it again because I hadn't talked to, been overseas, took a holiday, went overseas with my husband, which, you know, of course borders were shut and we weren't able to do for three years, so... Uh, we've been in Europe for the last month. It's it's really nice to come back and start talking about it again, I must say, and, and hope that it's reaching other readers and, and, other, and other areas. But look, I work as a psychologist, as I said, two days a week, and I write two days a week. That's, that's my plan for my life. And I try to keep one day a week free for 
I don't know, you, you know, for doing all the other things that mothers have to do because they don't <laughs> have time to, to do anything else. And it, it generally works pretty well. I really like that balance in my life. I don't want to work full-time as a psychologist. I don't want to write full-time either. Uh, having two days a week of each, I feel really blessed is an overused word, but I do. It's a great balance of my life, of being out in the world, doing stuff with other people and being in inside in my own head and creating worlds. I love that. That's beautiful. What advice do you have for aspiring authors? Oh, writing is a long game. It took me, my first novel was published at 40. I'm 55 now, but I wrote three novels before my first novel was published. I wrote novels for 10 years before my first novel. uh, And that was my other one that actually got into the the US. It was called uh, After the Fall, but that's, as I said, it's been 15 years since that came out just about now. I wrote for for novels for 10 years before the first one got up, got published, and I hear that. I hear a lot of people who are overnight successes who write their first novel and, you know, get it up and it does well, but for more writers that I know, and I know a lot of writers having been in the the game for the best part of 20 years, the more writers I know have, have had to work you know, long and hard and persistence is the name of the game, is is keeping your bottom in that chair and just turning up to do the work. The other thing I would say is be really familiar with your genre. I write commercial fiction. Know what is going off, what's popular in your genre. Try and work out if there's areas, there's gaps too, if there hasn't been. You know, when this story came to me about organ donation, a part of me did think, is that too macabre for the market? Is that too confronting for people? But I did also think I'm not aware that there's been, I mean, there's been My Sister's Keeper and there's been a few books about organ donation, but not a lot. So I did think, yeah, it's not something that's been overdone. So I think it's important when you're you're trying to sell a book to a publisher to be able to show exactly how it fits the market, both in terms of what's already there, but also in terms of what's not there. So I think that's important too. Yeah. And read aloud. That's my final thing. I read everything I write aloud. My husband is retired, uh, has been since he was 50. He's in other parts of the house. He goes, I just hear your voice coming from the study all day. There's just a constant murmur of your voice. He goes, what are you talking about? And it's just me reading out every sentence I write because to me, that's the only way you know if a sentence flows and and if it hits the ears correctly, so to speak. So, interesting. Yeah. I read what I write to my husband, but when he's like next to me, not with him in another room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't read anything. I don't show anything I write to my husband until it's published. Everybody does it differently. I'm really yeah. <laughs> insecure about my work. And I think, okay, if, if you know, Hodder or whoever or Penguin, my publishers in Australia, think it's good enough now I can show it <laughs> to my husband, but not until Penguin or Hodder have gone and given it a tick. That <laughs> so. is really funny. Uh, I know it's silly, isn't it? But no, yeah, it's not silly. That's so funny. So are you, have you started your next novel or maybe you've already finished another novel by now? No, I'm, I'm, I'm actually two thirds of the way into my next, what I hope will be my next novel. You know, I've written four or five novels that haven't got up, but they don't always get up. That's, that's the part of the persistence. I am very interested as a practicing psychologist. Um, I'm very interested in the intersection between the psychological and the medical, which is sort of what I'll leave you with this is about and and what others of my books um, have been about as well. My previous book, um, before I'll leave you with this, which wasn't published in America, is called The Way Back. And it was actually inspired by an American case, actually, by Elizabeth Smart, the kidnapping of Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Smart. And oh, good, I thought you'd probably know that case. I wasn't interested per se in the kidnapping. I was interested in how somebody gets over 
something like that, something as traumatic as that. I guess that novel is about post-traumatic stress disorder, which, again, doesn't sound particularly sexy, but it's that sort of thing that I'm interested in, how people deal with, with psychological things. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because part of what I'm working on at the moment is that, fingers crossed, in Australia, a screenplay, somebody's optioned that and a screenplay's been written for that at the moment. So it's, it's uh, fingers crossed it will get up. I mean, we've still got to get funding, but so I'm half involved with that process. I'm also working on a novel about an IVF mix-up, which, again, came from an article I read in the paper and is based on a true story. And, again, it's that lovely interface for me, not for the people involved, of the medical and the psychological and where that leaves us. So very interested in assisted reproduction and all the ethics around that. So, yeah. Wow. That's what's happening at the moment. Yeah, I've got to finish that by the end of the year. Well, I'm so impressed, Kylie. This is amazing. You're you're obviously, you're just so bright and so introspective <laughs> and you see the whole big picture. No, it's true. I mean, your vantage point as a psychologist, but in that world and being able to tap into the fiction, like I, maybe this is the new thing, you know, two days a week, psychology, two days a week writing will take off. Maybe you're just a trendsetter <laughs> here. I'm never an early adopter. I was the last person I know to get a mobile phone. But yes, I'm prepared to be an early adopter there you in this go. respect. And trendsetter. Yeah, I, trendsetter. I, 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 trendsetter. I recommend it to everybody. It's a great life balance. So, yeah. <laughs> and one day a week to do the shopping and the cooking and the cleaning. So, and walk the dog. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. Congratulations on I'll Leave You With This. And yeah, I can't wait to just follow along and see what else you come up with next. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 